<laughs> Alright, quiet down. It's Lent. You should all be dark and somber. We just got done with Advent. Every Advent you say, this is my favorite time of year because it's the one time of year I get to be sad and we can do all the sad stuff I like to do and we get one month off in January. <laughs> and we're back to like, well guys, it's time of year again where I get to say a bunch of sad stuff. <laughs> but Lent is different than Advent in a particular way. Though they rhyme. <laughs> it's Latin, right? They all sure. end like that. I want to read for you uh, something from uh, St. Basil, who is particularly esteemed in the Eastern Orthodox tradition, um, but is, is quite ancient compared to our modern time. So uh, we'll see if this has anything to do with the life that you find yourself in today. To what can we say about the journey of Lent? It is the journey of becoming like Christ. So then, let us flee self-indulgence as quickly as possible, lest we voluntarily choke ourselves to death. And so if anyone baited in the past has either amassed a dust heap of riches for themselves through acts of injustice and imprisoned their mind by worrying over them, or defiled their nature with the indelible filth of, what's that word, Noah? Lasciviousness. Lasciviousness. I need to go back to school. You're in school. <laughs> or surfeited themselves with other offense. Let them, while there is still time, before they come to the final destruction, cast off the greater part of their burdens. Before the ship sinks, let them jettison the cargo they ought not have accumulated. Let them imitate those who work on the sea. For these folks, even if they are transporting necessities on the ship, when a raging tempest arises from the sea and threatens to engulf the ship that is loaded down with cargo as quickly as they can, they jettison most of what weighs them down and are unsparing in casting their merchandise into the sea. They do this to raise the ship above the waves and possibly give only their souls and their bodies a chance to escape from the danger. Now it is surely far more appropriate for us rather than for them to think and act in this way, for they lose in an instant whatever they jettison and eventually fall into poverty by force of circumstance. But as for us, the more we jettison our wicked burdens, the more we shall accumulate even better riches for the soul. For fornication and all such things are utterly destroyed when they are jettisoned and are brought to non-existence when washed away by our tears. And then holiness and justice take their place and being light things. They are not likely to be engulfed by any waves. And yet when money is jettisoned in a good way, it is in fact not lost to those who have jettisoned it and flung it overboard. Rather, as if transported to other safer ships, the stomachs of the poor, it is saved. And its arrival in the safe harbor is anticipated. And it is kept for those who jettisoned it as an ornament, not a source of danger. We have not been saved from death and judgment, in order to engage in self-indulgence, but only that we might live to serve and love others and to become like Christ. You are dust, and to dust you will return before your ship sinks. Jettison the cargo you should have never accumulated. 
Jettison lust and replace it with compassion. Jettison gluttony to the stomachs of the poor. Tear down your wall to make room for the stranger. Let your fast produce unmistakably cruciform action. Then you will see your life exchange tumult and storm for calm. That is our invitation as we enter the season of Lent. Lent is usually a period of of fasting, but it's not just about fasting. It's about becoming something. It's about paying attention to these things that we might need to get rid of, not just to get rid of them, but because we will be better for it. And so that's your invitation. And how that needs to look for you, it can happen a million different ways. Um, But I hope that you take this season seriously, at least in introspection. And so I want to um, read an invitation to Lent that is based on the the Methodist Book of Worship. Friends, today marks the first Sunday in which, with the whole church, we enter the time of remembering Jesus' movement from death to life. Before spring comes winter, before light comes darkness, and before resurrection comes death. From our earliest brothers and sisters, the church has prepared for Easter by first entering into the experience before Easter. We remind ourselves of God's mercy and forgiveness. We renew our faith. We repent from all ways in which we have gone astray from the life of God. We enter the darkness and death so as to move towards resurrection. I invite you, therefore, to the discipline of Lent, self-examination and repentance by prayer, fasting, and self-denial, by sacrificial living and acts of love and justice, by confronting the death and darkness of our lives and of our world, that we might move closer to God's image and God's restoration closer to loving God and neighbor in harmony with all things. Let us journey with Jesus into the season. Let us follow Jesus from death to life. As we go through the season of Lent, we will watch these candles move from light to darkness, and then we will watch them be renewed with light come Easter. And so we have a few weeks where we're going to travel through this experience and try to take the process of Jesus' final days and hours and his life and death and resurrection very seriously. And I hope it shapes us in profound ways. But as we begin this week, we're going to begin with a confession. Now, confession, uh, some of you might come from a tradition where confession is a scary word. It shouldn't be. Confession is an act of you paying attention to the cargo that you have, to those things that you might be able to go, maybe I should get rid of this. Maybe I should lose that component so I can move into a better, healthier kind of living, one that reflects the image of God in my life and in the world. And so as we do this, this is just an opportunity for you to hear things and respond so it might call to your attention those things that might need to be paid attention to as we move towards Easter. It's not meant to make you feel guilty. It's meant to help you act differently. Okay? So where it says, uh, community, please feel free to respond if you would like. We begin by the confession of these sins, of all the ways our lives and our world are not as they should be in the presence of God and one another. Most holy and merciful God, We confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. 
we have not forgiven others as we have been forgiven. Have mercy on us, O God. We have shut our ears to your call to serve as Christ served us. We have not been true to the mind of Christ. We have grieved your Holy Spirit. We have not been of one body. Of our past unfaithfulness, pride, envy, hypocrisy, and apathy that have infected our lives, we confess to you. Our self-indulgent appetites and ways, our exploitation and dehumanization of other people, we confess to you. Our negligence in prayer and worship, and our failure to continue the story of our faith that is in us, we confess to you. Our neglect of human need and suffering, and our indifference to injustice and cruelty, we confess to you. Our false judgments, our uncharitable thoughts towards our neighbors, and our prejudice and contempt towards those who differ from us, we confess to you. our waste and pollution of your creation, and all the ways we have not treated all creation with your love, our lack of concern for what you have made and called good, and our lack of concern for those who come after us, we confess to you. Restore us, O God, and let your anger depart from us. Make us again like you. Hear us, O God, for your mercy is great. Uh, we're going to have an object reflection, and uh, this one's a little bit different in that the uh, people we're object reflecting um, aren't here. Um, yeah, they weren't able to make it because uh, they're not alive anymore. Um, that, <laughs> nonetheless... Uh, so the first person I want to tell you all about is uh, Joshua Slocum. Does anybody recognize the name Joshua Slocum? Very good. Now I can make all of this up. <laughs> so uh, Joshua Slocum wrote a book called Sailing Around the World. Um, and he consistently did this, one in 1860, 1870, 1880. Um, he was an American seafarer, traveled everywhere, and he, he sailed, and, and he was known for being a very competent uh, seafarer. Um, all of his children, Joshua Slocum, all of his children were born on a boat. So that tells you something about how much time he spent on the water. Um, and he often lived on a ship at sea. That was the world that he knew. Uh, one day, though, he is going to make this journey on his own. And uh, he gets this ship called the Spray that had not been taken care of, um, and the owner didn't know what to do with the boat. And so uh, he gave it to Joshua Slocum. Uh, Joshua then goes out into the woods and begins cutting trees, and he's going to rebuild this boat um, and fix it up. And so he cut all of the trees himself, he made all of the planks himself, and he rebuilt the spray. A few years later, so it takes him a few years to do that, um, he leaves from Boston Harbor, and he sailed around the entire world for three years. 
All right? Um, he also rigged the boat so that he could sail through the night while he slept. So this guy, you know, a little bit ahead of his time. Um, there's a, a few really amazing stories that he writes about on this journey. One is he gets attacked by pirates, and he's by himself. So what would you do if you were attacked by pirates and you're by yourself sailing around the world? You haven't thought about this before? The hypothetical situation? His idea is he sees the pirates right, coming, runs back downstairs, changes his clothes, comes back up, sees him again, runs back downstairs, changes his clothes, comes back up and sees him again, and he keeps doing this to make it look like there's a bunch of people on board this ship. The pirates sailed away. <laughs> Very creative. There's another situation where this family of dolphins, dolphins is following him, right? Behind the boat. And, um, Pod. He, Pod of dolphins. But they were brothers and sisters. <laughs> they were family. <laughs> yeah, right. So yeah, they knew each other very well. Don't but steal can, this from me. Can we be sure? They were a lascivious of okay, dolphins. Okay, there's a <laughs> pod of dolphins. Thanks. Thank you. Why is your microphone still on? <laughs> I love it. Way to go, Will, in the back with the wind there. This I is the it. last time. <laughs> All right, so then a shark comes, and the shark's going to eat it. And this is like his ingenuity. It's, it's great. He gets an iron skillet, okay, and ties it to a rope and put, puts bait in the skillet, okay? And he puts that down to attract the shark. He then holds the rope with his toe, leaning over the back of the boat, gets a shotgun, and while he's holding the rope with, with his toe, shoots the shark and saves the pod of dolphins. Okay, so this, this, is, this is Joshua Slocum. And then he writes this book called Sailing Alone Around the World. Um, eventually he lands at a port in Africa. He gives a lecture on how the world's not flat. So again, some people should probably listen to that. Uh, and, and yeah, so this is Joshua Slocum. How old do you think he was when he left Boston Harbor on the ship he rebuilt with trees that he cut down and planked himself? I got a 52, I got a 14. A 26? 33? Joshua Slocum was 51 when he left Boston Harbor. When does the adventure begin? When does your adventure begin? When does it end? I think we have a problem in our society of ageism. And I know, so here, I'm going to talk about ageism with somebody who's younger than me at my age of 30, and we're going to be the ones on the stage talking to all of you about ageism. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't quite think that one through. Later we'll be talking about how women are marginalized. <laughs> Just all of our expertise. Uh, he set me up for this. I didn't, I didn't know. But there's two views of time. One is that time appreciates, and one is that time depreciates. And I think our culture views time uh, like buying a new car, 
And as soon as you drive it off, it all, the value goes down. <clears throat> but there's another view of time, and that's one like good wine, that it actually improves in quality over time. And as a young person, though, I'm graying up, okay? Uh, I think it's important for me to go, is my best behind me? Like, does, does, it, does it go down from here? Or does it actually improve? It, do, am I going to be like the ancient village elders where I have more to say and more to contribute the older I get? That's, a, that's an appreciative view of time, where time inc increases something's value. And I think that's important in, a, in any kind of community that you have, that, that you have in the room this variance of time of which it all has something to offer. And I love Joshua Slocum's story because for him, like, his age didn't matter. He, he was going, he's going to do this thing because it's in his bones, and he's going to do it better than he did before because it, it's increased in value. Um, and I hope that kind of sits with us today. The text that uh, we're going to be looking at um, explores the value of roots and of tradition and of, of being anchored to something and then continuing to allow it to expand. And there's a great example of this. So, Noah, who, uh, tell us about who wrote. How many of you are familiar with the song Hurt? Okay, a few of you. Not, not a lot of you. That's interesting. Who wrote this song, Noah? Uh, Trent Reznor of the Nine Inch Nails. Every Trent Reznor fans in here? Okay, two of you. Uh, they're bad. It's fine. So like, has anybody? Really bad. And have you listened to the original "Hurt" by yeah. Nine Inch Nails? Yeah. What do you think of it? Uh, let me see if I can find the chord that they. It's something like instead of, instead of the way we know it, which is like. There's a something like. It's really, it's that, it's that dissonant on purpose. Yeah. Or something. So it's, it's, pretty, uh, it's a pretty tough listen. I'm not going to lie. It's, yeah. not, it's not really a great time. So there's a backstory to the song Hurt in that this group writes it, and they're relatively young. And this story that they're trying to tell is like, look what I've become. Um, it's this image of like end of life and... Uh, it's, I, I loved it. it. I'm here, and that was great. But man, I can't help but have these regrets. Yeah. And Nine Inch Nails plays it, and this is the vibe I get, where everybody's just like, "You know nothing <laughs> about that." Yeah. Like, and the, you tried to make it super dissonant, so it like catches the, and it didn't work. Yeah. Um, and now everybody who knows the song hurt affiliates it with Johnny Cash, Johnny Cash because Johnny Cash in his old age did not write this song but he took it and he said I'm going to show what this song is actually about and the thing I love about it is it's his lived experience he owns that song he did not write it but he owns that song yeah in the video uh, which is it's, at some point we should play it here but um Johnny's wife, I think, had just passed away when he when he cut the record that uh, that Hurt was on, and in the video, it's him sitting at a 
at a table that's full with food. And I think, I don't know if the picture, uh, they flash images of his wife sitting at the, at the table with him, yeah. which is just even the fact that you can be that raw for your art and for other people was just mm -hmm. totally mind-blowing. It's an amazing video. Well, so um, this song has something to say to the Latin experience, uh, especially based on that St. Basil quote of, you know, before your ship sinks, what are you going to do? And if you're still here, you're breathing, your ship hasn't sank, you're still traveling. What kind of traveling are you going to do? And this allows us to reflect on it. I also find something powerful just about the idea and the story of the song is that it took somebody who lived long enough to properly tell this story. And we will better appreciate the, the move of life if we can have that appreciative view of time. Johnny Cash, and you, know, you might have different opinions about the morality of Johnny Cash, and that's fine. But his lived experience increased in value the more he went. And he had something to say. And before he died, he said it. And it, it, I think, as well as his age, it took somebody who the American audience and the, and the international audience trusted already to do something good with music mm -hmm. to finally trust a voice saying something a little darker. So for, for Cash to have made most of his career as a dark person, but music that's generally uh, pretty... pretty uh, it was dark music, but it was country, right? Very straight-ahead right. country. To have it come from that same voice, say, you know what, I'm actually going to use my voice to say something pretty profound about, about life now that I've lived so much of it. And honestly, I'm sure he knew that he had lived most of it at the time that he wrote the song, uh, or sang the song, rather. So, Well, let's go ahead and uh, listen to this and, and enjoy it. Uh, Noah plays a very compelling version of it. Um, but recognizing, like, Johnny Cash owns this song, there's a reason why. And may we be the kind of people that, at the end of our lives, the songs that we proclaim are ones that we have owned and can impact the world because of what we've accumulated in our experience over time. Only there 
So I want to tell you guys a story, and I would like to have my image up here, please, Bob. All right, yeah. You've probably heard this story before, but I'm going to tell it to you again in a different way, perhaps. Um, there were four blind women, and they had heard about these animals called elephants. This is not staying where I want it to be. I always have trouble with this thing. There we go. There were four blind women, and they and they had heard about these animals called elephants, and they wanted to know what kind of an animal this was. So 
they go to the zoo, to the petting zoo, where there's an elephant that they are able to uh, touch and get close to. So the first woman comes to the elephant and she approaches it from the side and she puts her hands on the side of the elephant and she says, ah, I see, I understand now. Elephants are like a wall. Now the second woman approaches the elephant from the front and she reaches out her hand and she takes a hold of its trunk and she says, oh, now I understand. An elephant is like a snake. The third woman is a little bit short. So she gets a hold of the elephant and she takes a hold of its leg and she says, I understand what elephants are. Elephants are like a tree. And then finally the fourth woman comes behind the elephant and she gets a hold of the tail of the elephant and she pulls it down through her hands and she says, I understand what elephants are. Elephants are like a rope. So all these women had one perspective of this elephant, but none of them saw the whole picture. None of them were able to understand the whole elephant. So this is something that I'm learning how to do, this preaching thing, right? So often what I will do is go back into the archives of this farmhouse and get the old sermons and the old teachings and so that I can learn how to put these things together and do this craft. And as I was doing that, I recently ran across the very first Sunday service that I was ever here, and it was November 12, 2017. Now, I had been to a farmhouse event because I had been to a farmhouse conversation back in that September because Brenda Holdridge had invited me. And I really enjoyed it. I thought it was really cool, but I also wasn't sure if it was my place. I didn't, I didn't know if I should come back or not. I, I wasn't interested in coming to a church at all. So I, I didn't really come back. But then a couple months later, Brenda said to me, I'm gonna be being interviewed by our minister there. And I said, you know, I, I think I might like to go hear that. And I really liked Brenda, I wanted to hang out with her, right? So I thought, I think I'll come. I'll go to that. And it so happened that on that Sunday, the thing that was being spoken about was this. Tyler was talking to us about our vision of farmhouse. And of course, back then, it was nothing but an idea and some blueprints and some pictures. And he was talking about how if we are going to do this thing, we need to understand where we're coming from. So he spoke quite a bit about the uh, history of the Matamora United Methodist Church. And he was talking about how it all started in 1853 with nine people in a house. Just that, nine people. Can you imagine what they would think if they came forward now and saw us? But then he began to talk about how, yes, that was important, but now we have this new vision. And he started to talk about this place and farmhouse as this church reimagined to become something new, to be rooted in the ancient way, but to become this new idea of a place of healing and wholeness for the community and for the world. And as he sat, as I was sitting there listening to him, I thought, you know, this is just like the book of Acts. Because no matter what my spiritual path has been, and it's been rather convoluted, I've always been a Bible geek. I've always loved the Bible. And so I've always studied the Bible, and I've always been especially fond of the book of Acts. Uh, because I love the exciting stories. They were doing something new, and, and, and it was so dynamic. 
And as I was sitting there, I thought, this is just like that. This is just like the, the early Christian con community learning to do this new thing. And so I started coming back. And I started coming back. And I came and I came and now here I am. And as I was listening to that old recording then a couple of weeks ago, I realized that what he was talking about had a lot to do with what we were going to be talking about today in Acts chapter 7. So at, that, at this point now, I will start, we'll start with Acts chapter 7. Um, in order to set that up, though, I need to explain to you a little bit about what happens in Acts chapter 6. Uh, it starts the story. You may remember how the communities were all coming together, and everybody was sharing their resources, and people were selling their goods and distributing their you know, the contributions that they were making, and everybody was together. But human nature being what it is, it began to feel like maybe things weren't quite as equal as they should be. And some of the people were especially concerned about the grandmothers, the widows, the older women in the congregation weren't maybe getting everything that they should be getting. So they approached the apostles, and the apostles said, okay, you know what, let's appoint some men. We're going to appoint seven men to uh, make sure that this is being distributed equally. And they appoint these seven men, two of which become important in the story of Acts. One of them was Philip, who you heard about last week, and then you'll hear about him again next week. But then one of them was a man named Stephen, and he's who we'll be talking about today. Now, in the story of Acts, we are told about Stephen that he is full of the Holy Spirit, and that he's a very eloquent man, and he's very wise. So every day he would go down to the synagogue and he would sit there with the men and they would talk and argue Torah because that's what they like to do. And he was telling them the story about how this story of Israel is also connected to this Jesus that he's talking about. And every argument that he would make about this, these men could not answer him because he was so wise and so good at this. And it began to make them feel jealous. And it began to be where they didn't really like him very much. And so they get angry and they take him before the high court, the Jewish high priests, and they said, this man is, is speaking against the temple and he's speaking against our traditions and he's speaking against God. He's blaspheming. So the high priest says to him, well, what are you saying? What are you doing here? Stephen stands up before the high court. Remember, these are the men who would have known this story inside and out. They studied their Torah since childhood. They had it memorized. He proceeds to stand in front of them and tell them their whole story. He starts back with Abraham and the covenant, and he tells them the story of Abraham and the covenant and why that was important. And then he goes to Moses, and he starts talking about the Exodus story and Moses and why Moses' story was important, and he brings it through to the prophets. And then he brings Jesus in, and he says, do you see how Jesus is connected to this, how he is a continuation of this story? And while he's doing this, it's like suddenly he can see the whole thing. And he just, his eyes are open and he looks up and he says, it's, 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 as, it's as if like the blind women, like he suddenly can open his eyes as if they could suddenly see the whole elephant. He stands there and he says, look, look, I see the heavens opening up and I see the throne of God and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Oh, that makes these men so angry. They don't want to hear this. They grab Stephen and they haul him to the outside of the city and they throw him down and they stone him. They kill him. They stone him to death. Because they don't like what he's saying. He's taking their story, their tradition, 
and he's changing it in a way that they did not understand. They knew this story so well, and yet they still missed the point. That this story was not static. It wasn't going to just stay there. They had this ongoing thing that's about it. It's the dynamic story. Just as the elephant is a moving dynamic animal and more than the sum of its parts, so this story is a moving dynamic story that was continuing. But they didn't want that to happen, so they kill Stephen. They're hoping that by doing that, that they'll end this Jesus movement. They think, you know what, we kill one of these guys, they'll be done. They're all just going to scatter, they'll all dissipate, we'll be done with this whole thing. But that's not at all the way the kingdom of God works. It's always an expanding story. It's always an including story. And we know that many of the people did understand because look what happened at Pentecost. All these people were coming in. All these Jewish people were coming in to understand the story and how Jesus was connected to it. And remember, at that point, there was no necessarily idea of being Christian. They were still all Jewish people. But they were understanding how their story was something bigger. And so they had a wider perspective on it than the Jewish high priest did. But then what happened is the Gentile people start coming in now. Now there's another perspective coming into the story. And these Jewish people have to understand them, and sometimes those Gentile people don't really look much like them, and they're not sure what to do. And we get into that in the book of Acts, how they do learn how to deal with them and decide, you know, what are we going to believe, and what does it mean to be Jewish, and what does it mean to be part of this whole story? But we know that that had to happen. Because what did Jesus say to us or to them? He said, you need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then in Judea and then in Samaria and to the ends of the earth, to the ends of the world. But where do we fit into that story? That's us. We're at the ends of the world. We are the edge of this story because none of those first century Christians could ever have imagined 21st century of America. None of those first century Christians would never understood Metamora being in a state called Ohio, being in a country called the United States. So this story is expanding outward, and who knows where this story will be in another 2,000 years, but right now we are on the edge of this here. And yet, in order for us to understand this, because this isn't just some new idea that somebody came up with, you know, Tyler thought up. This is not just a crazy idea. This is rooted in that center that we have to understand. This is why we do these things. This is why we study the book of Acts. Because we need to see how we are rooted in that story. But even to understand the farmhouse, we need to understand where we came from. And that day, and back in November, Tyler was talking about that history because in order for us to understand what farmhouse is, we definitely have to understand our history here. And I don't know that story very well because I'm kind of new, that story of the Metamora Church. And yet, in order to understand what was happening there, we have to understand Methodism. And if you're going to understand that, well, you need to know who John Wesley was and what his story was and how he was then influenced by church fathers and so you have to understand the whole history of the Christian church, which takes us back to the book of Acts. And yet the book of Acts is centered on Jesus because he's the fulcrum of the whole thing. Because he is a continuation of the stories in the Torah of the old, you know, the Hebrew scriptures. His story is the embodiment of that story. And we have to understand that. And we go through the prophets. We go to Moses and Exodus and to Abraham and to God. 
This is a huge story. This is a big story. But it's also our story. So we need to take the time to understand it. And yet, even within that context, it's not enough just to sit and read the story or learn those things. You could do that at home. You can sit there and read the book of Acts all you want. You can read the commentaries and the theologians, and there's all these things. And believe me, you can fill your head with this stuff all day. And it's nothing but academic knowledge. If you don't come together then and learn how to practice those things together, because that's what we're doing here. When we come together here at the farmhouse, we're taking on that name of Jesus. And we know that taking on that name is about not just saying the name, but embodying that life, that other-centered kind of life that we need to have. Because this is the way we, we turn our eyes. You know, we keep our eyes turned to ourselves. With an, you know, when we live that life of Christ, we, our eyes come outward, and we can see our, our friends and our neighbors, the people sitting next to us. And then we begin to understand their perspective. And that helps us to become more compassionate towards each other. And this is the way we learn to love. There's something really beautiful happening here. Don't miss it. We get so caught up sometimes in our own perspective, we cling so tightly to our own part of the elephant that we miss the whole animal. Tyler on that day in November, he stood up in front of us all and he asked us the question. He said, what if you were ne what was needed to heal the world? What if we are? What if right here at the farmhouse, we are the very thing that is needed to heal ourselves, to heal our families, to heal our community, and to heal the world? And this I really believe. I think that if we actually do that thing, I think if we actually become the thing that we are supposed to be here in this, we can become that. I think that then we can become that reimagined church. Thank you.